And now if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the book of Esther. Book of Esther, as we continue our journey here through this story. The people of God in exile. This evening we're going to look at Esther chapter 4. Chapter 4 is kind of the turning point of the book. It's the, it's the opportunity we have to see God's people in difficulty turning to Him. If you would please now give attention to me as we hear God's Word, Esther chapter 4. This is the very Word of the Lord. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Atak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this, your word, 
to impress your love, your care, and your sovereignty upon our lives. Lord, we ask that you would lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. There is a story of a famous legion in the 3rd century A.D., 286 to be precise. There was a legion called the Theban Legion. It was called that because of the place where it was organized. And a legion in those days was about 6,000 men. The interesting thing about this legion was, to a man, everyone in the legion was a Christian. They were known for being believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as often happens in these times, there were conflicting emperors and conflicting rulers, and there was often more war inside the Roman Empire than outside it. And the Theban legion was called because it was located away from Gaul, to go to Gaul, that is modern France, and to wipe out Christianity in Gaul. You can imagine what a difficult command even here, let alone think about putting forth. Well, what happened? Well, the legion, to a man, said that they could not do this, that they weren't about to wipe out fellow believers Gaul. The emperor flew into a rage and he called for the legion to be decimated. Now, when we think of decimated, we think of completely wiped out, but decimated gets its name from the Latin word for ten. And when a legion was decimated, every tenth man at random was chosen and put to the sword, killed. So this happened to this legion. And the command went on a second time that they were to follow the emperor's orders and to go and to do his bidding. And for a second time, they refused. And so they were decimated a second time. And then, at the urging of the officers, it said that the soldiers drew up a humble request to the emperor, saying that they had served him honorably and would serve him and would protect the empire and would fight his wars, but they could not be called upon to kill their brethren. One might think that in the midst of all that horror, the calm, the humility of the request, the reasonableness of the request would assuage the anger and the fury of the emperor. And that if this were a Hollywood movie, everything would turn out fine and perhaps even they would be honored with a banquet. But this was not a movie. This was real life. And what happened in real life was the emperor became even more furious and he called in other legions and he had the Theban legion completely wiped out. Because you see, in real life sometimes, there is no happy ending. But you see, the men of that legion were faced with a choice. It was a very stark choice about what to do, kill or be killed. But it's not unlike the quality, if not the quantity, of choices that we face every day. When we face the choice of whether to follow the world or to name the name of Christ, to compromise or to stand firm on the truth of God. You see, there comes a time 
in every man, woman, or child's life. But we have to choose. That's what we're seeing here this evening in Esther 4. We're seeing a choice that is put before Esther. And as you may recall, one of the things we have been looking at is that Esther is not exactly the perfect poster queen that maybe we thought of from Sunday school days. That there are some cracks in her makeup. And that even Mordecai has his own flaws. And I think as we look at this, it gives us hope and comfort because they're not somewhere off Bible people that are perfect. And these decisions are easy for them. And our situation is so different. Their situation is actually much closer to ours. So what I would like us to see briefly, as our time is short, are three quick things. First, I'd like us to see life in isolation. As we look at Mordecai and at Esther, and we see them in isolation. And then secondly, we will see the hard choice that they face. That their life is in isolation, and they face a hard choice. And then finally, we will see the real refuge that they are given. Let's look first then at life in isolation. Mordecai is a man who lives in isolation. You may not think so, because he knows what's going on. But it is a life in which he is isolated from his true relationship with God's people and with the Lord. When we look at Mordecai, we're tempted to think he is the most connected man, or I should say the most connected Jew, in Persia. Look at verse 1. He, the first thing we learn about him is that he learned all that had been done. He is in the know, and his sources are great. Any reporter would love to have Mordecai's sources, because he not only has the public information, he not only has the paper and the decree, he knows to the penny what Haman has offered to get this decree. He's obviously got an inside man or woman. So he is completely in the know. And we also see that he is affected by this. He is in mourning. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. Now, what does this mean? This is kind of the equivalent of wearing black the day, the week of a funeral. You see a woman walking around in a black dress with a black veil... A good guess says she's going to or coming from a funeral. It's a visible representation of mourning. That's what tearing the clothes is involved with as well. And so he is obviously in mourning. But he is cut off from the king. It's very interesting. Look at verse 2. He sees this problem, knows where he needs to go, or so he thinks, and yet he is cut off from the king. In verse 2. He went up to the entrance of the gate, but he was not allowed to enter the gate. Why? Because sackcloth and ashes. Now think about this for a moment. At this situation, Mordecai is so law-abiding that he will not break the king's law in order to talk to him about this decree. He is the most law-abiding Jew in Persia. Well, except for bowing to Haman. Remember that. That's how scrupulous he is at this point. And so he goes out and he seeks Esther's help. He puts on the sackcloth and ashes and he mourns and he goes and he wants to tell Esther what is going on. He sends word to her that she may know. Now, this is very interesting about what 
is happening. He goes up to the gate with fasting, weeping, lamenting in verse 3. And then he says to Esther, he says, you need to go and you need to ask, you need to, verse 8, beg the king's favor, plead with him. There's something interesting about this. Put your finger here and turn to Daniel chapter 9. We see a similar kind of a situation in Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord and seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Sound familiar? Sackcloth, ashes, pleas, mercy. But what's different? How does verse 4 begin? I prayed to the Lord, my God. Now go back where you had your thumb and find the verse in chapter 4 where it says Mordecai prayed to the Lord. What, you haven't found it yet? It's because it's not there. Isn't that interesting? Mordecai knows the situation is so grave, he knows exactly what he's got to do. He's got to get to the king. Yes. Wrong king. He's worried about the king of Persia. He should be worried about the king of the universe. He should be lifting up his pleas, his groans, his mourning to God. He's isolated from God in the midst of all this difficulty. The question then comes to you. Where do you go first in trials and difficulties? Do you go to the pharmacist looking for the perfect medication? Do you go to the doctor? Do you go to the therapist? Do you go to the educational bookstore? Where do you go? You need to go first to God. You go to any one of those other places. You could seek help from general revelation, from doctors, from physicians, from counselors. But you must go first to God. Don't be isolated like Mordecai. Esther's another one that is isolated. She doesn't even know the seriousness of the situation. Look at where we pick up her in verse 4. She doesn't even know how serious the situation is. She hears that Mordecai is running around the streets crying and wailing in sackcloth and ashes. And she sends out some helpers to find out why he is so concerned. And look at what her concern is. She sends clothes to him. She tells him, would you please clean up? Come on. You're going to embarrass yourself, Mordecai. Look at where her focus is. Her concern is to keep Mordecai from embarrassment. Now, think about the irony here. Look at verse 3. In every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. Now, have a map of the world in your mind and know that from India to Egypt, Jews are in mourning. Everyone but one. Why? Well, maybe it's that bad news isn't allowed at the court. They didn't allow that 
information. But why doesn't Esther talk to one of her friends? She doesn't have any. Why doesn't she speak to the covenant community? Why does she go to a good old prayer meeting? She's cut off from that community. She's by herself because of her relationship, her marriage to a Gentile. She has been cut off. She is isolated from her covenant community. She's the only Jew, perhaps, in the world that doesn't know this is going on. She has been protected from herself. And this isolation is highlighted by the way the story lays out. You saw as we read it. She sends her messenger to Mordecai. He sends a messenger back to her. She sends a messenger back to him. This guy's earning frequent flyer miles. He's going back and forth, back and forth like a ping pong ball. Because she can't have any direct communication. She's completely cut off and isolated. Now, if we think about it, you won't be queen of Persia. Especially you men. But we can have the same difficulties come our way. Because we can be isolated by God's community, by our compromise. By the kinds of compromise that Esther made. By compromising with the world, we can cut ourselves off from the source of community that God has given to us. You have heard me preach this before. I will preach it again. When people have difficulties in their lives with their children, with their marriages, with their finances, the first thing they do is run from the church. Isolate themselves. And that is the last thing they should do. They should seek God's provision in His people. But you see, Esther is isolated. And she then faces a hard choice. A hard choice is laid before her, and it is a choice with no guarantees at all. There is danger. Look at verse 11. Everybody knows, Mordecai, everybody knows if you go into the king, you may not come back alive with your head. You ought to especially know that, Mordecai. Everybody even out in the provinces knows this. You live out near the gate. There's real danger here. She's focused on this. Now, we need to think about that for a minute. A decree has just come down that all Jews will be killed. And she says, but it's dangerous for me to go in. Is the danger unreal? No, of course it is. Is there a surety? Is there a guarantee here? Is there a promise in the Bible that says, God will protect you if you go into a Persian king without permission? Is that promise in the Bible? No. So, that danger is real. It's as real as the danger that you face in your lives. There is not a promise of God to deal with every dangerous situation you face. But the problem is that Esther is focused on the danger and not on God. You see, don't treat your own danger like, well, I have to pretend it's not real. No, it is. But don't focus on the danger. Focus on God. And you'll notice she doesn't refuse to do this. She just reminds Mordecai. She gives him a chance to be an Indian giver, to take that back. Oh, wow, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was too dangerous for you, Esther. We'll find another way. She gives him a chance. But I think behind here, there is a question. There is a question that says, could God really use me? You know, as for me, he hasn't even called me in for 30 days. Could God really use me in this situation? Isn't there someone else who's holier, who hasn't made the mistakes I have, who doesn't have the baggage I have? You ever feel like that? 
I know I do. That's a real thought. God uses sinners. As a matter of fact, they're the only kinds of people he uses. Just like Esther. Now, notice that God is the background assumption here between Mordecai and Esther. You see, this whole thought that Mordecai has where he says, listen, this may be the very reason that you are in this place at this time. And know that if you don't seize this opportunity, God, the people will be saved. But you will be punished. Behind there is God. There is a theological assumption behind Mordecai's statement that God is in control, that he will save his people, and that if you disobey him, you will be punished. But notice again what is not there. God. God is never mentioned. He is in the background. He is an assumption in this conversation between Mordecai and Esther. It does make sense that God is there and He is in the background because that kind of a statement would be meaningless in a world without God. Do you know why your neighbors and your friends are so frightened of AIG or the stimulus plan or terrorism? Because in their heart of hearts, they know they are not guaranteed a happy ending. There is nobody in control, they think. Things are spinning out of control, actually. There's nowhere to turn. They are very afraid. Not so for the Christian. Because the Christian knows that even if AIG comes crashing down, and even if the economy goes completely kaput, and even if nuclear weapons are exploded in America, God is still in control, and the real ending is still happy for the Christian. That's the difference. The only hope that Esther and Mordecai have, the only hope that you have, is to be linked to the Lord. You have no hope otherwise. Cash in your chips. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, says Paul. The only hope is in the Lord. And so Esther is pressed, and she realizes that she can no longer sit on the fence. And this is where she is a lot like us even if we aren't queens. You see, up until now, she has been able to be undercover believer. She's sliding under the radar. She's in amongst all Persians. She is so much not a Jew publicly that nobody even thinks to tell her about this decree against the Jews. Is that you at work? Is that you at school? Are you an undercover believer? Are you seeking to slide under the difficulties? Do you slink back in your chair when your Lord is defamed around a table? Do you join in with the crude jokes? Or do you say nothing when things are taken or stolen? You see, Esther regarded herself as a part of the covenant community, but she had been completely separated by that or from that community by her actions. And that can happen today to a Christian believer who spends every Sunday in church. We must identify with God and with His people. You see, now Esther is faced that she has to pick an option, and neither one is very appealing. On the one hand, she can choose to deny her people 
And she becomes even more isolated. And even if she survives the, the death of all the Jews, it's a slow, agonizing, isolating, lonely death that faces her. But on the other hand, if she identifies publicly with her people, there's not much hope there either. Because the king has to show her honor. And she even says as much to Mordecai, I don't really expect it. He hasn't called me in 30 days. And if you think that the, the king is sleeping on the couch for 30 days, you're kidding yourself. He's got whoever knows how many other wives or concubines. You see, she is dropping off the radar. So what does Esther do? She learns to trust. And she sees where the real refuge is. Esther picks solidarity with her people. And she does it in a very interesting way. She says, after Mordecai presses the point home to her, she says, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to fast. My ladies are going to fast. And you're going to fast. We're going to identify together. We're going to, to fast. And we're going to pray. And we are going to Come together as God's people, and then I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. Now, I want you to see how life-changing this is for Esther. She's going to fast for three days, and then go to see the king. Now, the rule is, you go in to see the king, you don't even get to present your case. He either points the scepter at you when you live, or he doesn't and you die. So what do you have going for you if you're Esther? All you have is your physical appearance. That's the only thing you have. So what's the worst possible thing you can do with your physical appearance? When you know the king likes his women well-fed and well-manicured. You go on a three-day fast. So your face is drawn. And you got bags under your eyes. And you're tired. Why? Esther, come on because she's moving past the superficial now for the first time perhaps in her life. She is moving past the superficial and she is identifying with God's people and she wants to know that closeness and to be with them and to seek the Lord. This only makes sense if God is real to her. Otherwise, this is complete foolishness. She learns to trust. But then she also learns to act She's learning that theology has implications, that the world around her is hostile, but that God is in control. If I perish, I perish. God is in control. The question comes to you, Christian, as you face difficulty, as you face trials, what does your silence say about you in these situations? What does your declaration say about you? You see, Esther's cry is, if I perish, I perish. Because what's important is not the winning or the losing, or the living or the dying. We cannot choose how the thing will end out. It may not end out well. It didn't for Josiah and his kingdom, did it? But what we can choose is to glorify God in the end. No matter what that end is, that we will glorify Him and seek Him. That is what Esther chooses. 
That is what God challenges you with today, whether it's at college, at school, in retirement, or at work, is to choose to glorify God and leave the outcome to Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this word from Esther. We thank You for the way in which she served You and that You have worked through her. We pray, O Lord, that you would work through us as well. That you would bless us. That you would keep us. We thank you, Lord, for this food that you have laid out before us. We pray that you would use it to strengthen us for the week coming. And we pray, O Lord, that you would give us sweet fellowship around the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. And now if you would please stand for the benediction. I may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.